Welcome to the 206.com podcast. I am your host, Mark Morin, and you are listening to Diversity in Film, a 206 podcast series. This podcast series features in-depth interviews with filmmakers and industry experts discussing the topic of diversity in film. Look for episodes featuring director and activist Lin Chen, director and producer Emily Ting, executive director of the Northwest Film Forum, Vivian Hua, rapper Lex the Lexicon Artist, podcast host and film critic Isabella L. Price, world-renowned Disney film producer Don Hahn, director of marketing for Smart House Creative Amy Simon, film critic and podcaster The People's Critic Tim Hall, lifestyle blogger and film critic Aaron Hunley, actor, activist, and model Anna Lynn McCord. Thank you for listening to the 206.com podcast. Let's get to the interview. This is Mark Morin with 206.com podcast, and today I'm speaking with Don Hahn. Welcome, Don, to the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. People would recognize you as a producer of The Lion King, both versions, by the way, Beauty and the Beast, also both versions, the Maleficent, Disney Nature documentaries, and a whole list of different uh, listings on your IMDb page. So one of the first things I wanted to ask you, being a producer, like how do you get started as a producer in the film industry? What is a producer? Like, what do you do? Oh, if only I knew. No, I'm a, uh, I think it's pretty easy to understand. You're kind of like a um, coach on a, on a football team, soccer team, uh, whatever, uh, because you're, you're not out calling the plays, you're not kicking the ball around, but you're putting together a team and you are, you know, making sure everybody has a game plan and then making sure everybody's kind of pulling in the same direction, that there's some sort of um, unity to, the, in, in my case, into the storytelling. And also make sure the team players are working out. So I think, you know, I love watching baseball uh, or uh, whatever sport because it has a lot of parallels to what I do. Because you look at, you know, a pitcher who's not quite hitting and you need to take him out of the game and you need to put somebody else in. Or you look at the, um, a young girl coming up who's hitting home runs and you want to put her in the game more. and. So that kind of variety is interesting to me. And then I, I, I never had a strong commitment to a um, discipline or, or a job title when I was growing up. I always hated the idea of saying, I'm gonna be a dentist or I'm gonna be a doctor or whatever. So I am a generalist, I guess you would call me. And, and that fits really well with being a producer too because a daily job is working with music or working with an artist <clears throat> or working with finance and budgeting and you know people that take care of that and and so the variety is really great and i i like all of it it has its ups and downs like anybody's job but i like that variety a lot and i, I think probably because i'm a little attention deficit and so the idea of being able to hop around during the day is good it's good for me is there a certain part of that process that, that you favor over you know some of the stuff that might seem more like work well, I'm a, I guess I would call myself a creative producer, although that's debatable, but I, I, I like the creative process, meaning the storytelling. Sure. So uh, everything in a movie, if, if it's done right, whether it's the acting or the color or the voices or the music, it's all about telling a story. The principal storytellers are gonna be the writers and the directors. So that, that's not necessarily me, but I'm probably gonna be the first person on a movie 
And like I think of Beauty and the Beast, this is 30 years ago. I was the first person on Beauty and the Beast. And so I'm sitting there alone. And so I have to hire somebody. So who's the first person you hire? Well, I hired a guy named Max Howard, who is a really brilliant guy from the theater in London. And then he knew a couple of people to come in and help us in the office. And then we hired the director, Richard Williams, and he had artists that he was working with. We hired them. And so you build this team kind of um, in a progressive fashion as the movie goes along. And, uh, and then as the movie finishes, everybody begins to wander away and you're the last person on the movie. And so that's a really odd feeling. It's a long process. That's why a lot of times producers will have two or three movies going at once. But I, I love it. And I, I think it's it, it makes me laugh because a lot of times people think of a producer as um, a cigar smoking guy who's <laughs> about the, you know, Harvey Weinstein or a guy with, you know, uh, problems with the law and <laughs> or he's in a hot tub with, with golden chains and his yeah. uh, cell phone. That's rarely me. I, I That's not a typical night in your household? It's, it's No, no. I usually <laughs> taking out the trash is a typical night. I really like the people and I like doing the job. And I think in a funny way, being a producer is being a servant of the artists that are making the movie. I like that. That works for me really well. Other people want to be more of a boss type producer or right. business type producer, but I, I like the idea of being a servant of the process. And, and the, the people I loved grow, growing up who were producers that I admire, like Robert Watts, who produced the first Star Wars movie and some of the oh, the great uh, James Bond movies and, and Roger Rabbit. He said, you know, everybody's everybody's here to tell the story from the tea cart lady all the way up to the director. And his job was to hire the best people he could and then stand back and do exactly what they told him to do. And I thought that was nice. that's what we do. It sounds like identifying talent would be a real big piece of, of what you do. Yeah, and I love that because sometimes people don't know they're the, a talent. One of my favorite things is, and this happened to me last year, I, I uh, hired a girl, a woman, uh, yeah, she's a girl, out of Art Center, College of Design, from the illustration department. And um, I hired her just as a PA, and I told her when I hired her, you know, this is to take errands and make coffee and all that stuff. But really, her portfolio was amazing and excellent, but she had no self-confidence. So once I got her in and we worked for a while, and then I said, well, I'd like you to do this piece of art. I'd like you to do uh, this logo. I'd like you to do this storybook. And she would, but she'd be very insecure about it. And um, eventually over the year, she opened up and became, you know, like a flower opening up. She was this really good artist. And now she's working uh, as an artist in the industry. And, and, and I, so I love that. I love kind of mentoring and trying to help people see themselves for what they are. That's amazing that, you know, you see that person's growth and, and what they turn into. What would be the difference between working with somebody like her, like you just described, and bringing on Angelina Jolie to be Maleficent? Well, um, it's quite different, and particularly in animation artists, that kind of thing. It tends to be more direct contact, more daily contact. Mm -hmm. I, I, I never uh, ran into Angelina Jolie for more than 30 seconds on that movie. Oh, wow. And the reason for that is I, I'm an executive producer on Maleficent. And my biggest contribution to that movie was the story up front. I originally took it to um, Tim Burton and I took a drawing of Mark Davis's to Tim Burton. I said, you know, the greatest villain of all time, uh, Walt Disney presents Maleficent. And I held up the drawing and he said, oh, I gotta do that. Well, over time, his schedule wouldn't allow him to. So we moved on to some other creative teams, but uh, putting that movie together first with Tim and then with other teams was fantastic. And then I brought in Linda Wolverton, who I had worked with on uh, uh, Beauty and the Beast. I had run into her at Comic-Con and I, I, 
I said, hi, Linda. Hey, we have to talk. I have this idea. And I just felt she was so perfect for it. And Linda is a really strong writer. She's very, she can be very intense and very gifted with what she does. And I just knew she would have a take on this Maleficent story that would be fantastic and, and so much different than anything I would have or any, and I think here's where gender actually comes into a happy play and diversity is I think in some sense, it would be rare for a, a man to tell that story. I think it was such a, a strong story to tell from a woman's point of view. And boy, did she bring it. That was a, the first Maleficent. It was a great script. And Angelina is a writer director also. So she has a creative notes. She has an intensity and a participation that is fantastic. You want that. You know, you don't pay somebody like that to just show up and be on camera, although you do for her performance, but she also knows what she does best. So if there's something in the script where she goes, no, I can't deliver that. I think this is a better idea. She'll tell you. That's where I start to back away. And there's other producers and other people that can um, take it and run with it. But I feel most proud of that movie. You know, there was, there was one day I remember in particular where we sat in the office of a development executive at Disney and Linda was there and I was there and um, one of my friends, another producer was there. And we talked about Love's True Kiss and the idea of the original, this is probably more information than you want, the idea that the original Sleeping Beauty was a girl who slept through the whole movie and couldn't have a life until a guy showed up and kissed her. Right, right. None of us wanted to tell that story. It was fine in the 50s, but not so much now. Yeah. So um, to be able to take that story and say, well, what if Love's True Kiss came from Maleficent? What if she really misjudged Aurora, in fact, hated Aurora because of who she came from and what the human world did to Maleficent? But in the end, she saw the innocence and love that she had for Aurora, and that's where Love's True Kiss came from. And we debated that around and around and around, but we all kind of landed on it because we thought, it's it's okay if it's right for the story. We thought, will Disney fans hate it? Will they be angry at us for changing the story? <laughs> but then we thought, well, no, not if we do it right. And if we're true to ourselves and true to the story we're telling, it'll actually be more emotional than the Sleeping Girl story. Yeah. So th those are the kinds of things I love and where I my best days are contributing to those kinds of decisions. Then I can go away and there's people far better than I am to direct and shoot and produce and, and feed and clothe and everything else uh, and edit the movie. And again, the director's a primary uh, storyteller in that process as well. But but those early things of saying, what's, the, what's this movie about and why do I care? If you can answer those questions early on, that's a big part of the job. And that's a really good point that you bring up as far as the diversity aspect of having a woman write that story because it really did show that perspective and added a sense of authenticity to the story and i feel like that is why it became such a huge success because it did resonate with an audience that was looking for something like that it sounds like there was definitely some intent from the get-go based on what you're saying yeah i mean it was a, a story about a strong woman who was abused when she was a child, not sexually, but just physically abused and right. psychologically abused. And so you had to respond to that. I think that's what Linda did so well and um, it, it is to do that. And Angelina as well is a brilliant performer. Right. And and so that story becomes really resonant in, in a way that I certainly couldn't do. You know, I could be in the room and encourage people to go in one direction or another. Yeah, that's, I think there's something very special about the chemistry we had on that movie. In the spirit of taking a story from the past and bringing it to something to a more current audience, as I mentioned before, you were produ a producer on the original Lion King. 
and then you were a producer or were you executive producer on the more current the last year's Lion King. I, w- I was kind of a, a uh, tangential executive producer uh, in the background. I really had very little to do with the modern retelling of The Lion King. Okay. Not for lack of desire, because I thought it was a modern miracle of science that that movie got made and looked the way it did. I also feel like John Favreau is one of the, if not the greatest director of our time. He's a great storyteller, he's fearless with technology, and he was given a possibly an impossible task. We certainly, he was very generous to us, uh, meaning Rob Minkoff and Roger Allers, the original directors of the film, and myself, Irene Mecki, one of the writers. And we would go down and visit, he would show us what he was doing, he would show us story reels, very welcoming. But our feeling all along was we did, we had our chance. We made this movie already. We don't need to make it again. And I really believe in that. I feel like that's kind of Groundhog Day. You don't have to go back and revisit it. We did our best shot. We, we told it the way we would in 1994 and we left it on the on the dance floor, as they say. Uh, so to be able to come back and remake it would be bad casting on the studio's part, and, and I knew it. I was happy they included me, but I, I didn't need to be there. It, it was kind of fun. It was fun watching it in process. It was fun watching somebody like John Favreau work. He, he had to bring such an energy and a positivity, if that's a word, to the process. And so that was, it was a joy for me because in contrast, the Lion King movie back in the early 90s it is an everyday thing. It's like raising a problematic child uh, and problematic <laughs> in that the movie always has problems. Its story right. isn't working, the art direction isn't working, the machine is broken, this and that. And you're constantly fixing and adjusting every day. And so that was a 24-7 job for a couple of years. Sure. The good thing I remember looking back on that 25 years ago now, as I love the people, I love Rob Minkoff, Roger Allers, the directors are like brothers to me. They're just people that make me laugh and I get along well with, and they're really good storytellers. Man, those guys, like their ideas are fantastic. Uh, and the crew we put together is the same thing. Like Andy Gaskell, our art director, is a brilliant guy. So many people in that movie, the voice cast, everybody really had a good uh, sense of the story they wanted to tell. And the chemistry amongst the crew was really positive, which I always like to have. You mentioned the casting a little bit and going back to the topic of diversity. For the first Lion King, it seemed like to me, looking back on it, there was a real focus on bringing in people that had like Broadway talents because there was going to be a lot of theatrics in the voice casting and a lot of the songs. And then now in the more current one, still with that in mind, there seemed like there was a a specific intent to fill most of the cast with members of the African-American community, you know, within Hollywood. And was there a real intent from the beginning to go that direction or maybe just discuss that topic a little bit from your perspective? Yeah, it's a a different world between those 25 years that passed between those two movies. And so the opportunity, and we, we probably had the opportunity to cast a ethnically diverse cast in 1994's movie. Our choice back then was to cast a colorblind cast so that it was okay to have an African-American father and a Anglo son. It's okay to have a mixed palette of voices and you don't see the skin color of who's doing the voice. Right. So we had this colorblind United Nations idea. And that wasn't the driving force behind the casting on that movie. The driving force was the voice and the actor. And so in some case, the voice and the actor happened to be one uh, ethnic background or another. I think you jump ahead to the modern version of Lion King and you have the opportunity now and the group of people out there in the industry that are just great actors and are available to put into a movie like this. It's not to say there weren't great actors in 1994 
great African-American actors, there were, but now there's a, a very welcoming, permissive, uh, exciting energy to get off of that kind of decision for a movie that is about Africa. It's funny, we always, it, Lion King is meant to be timeless. You don't know if it takes place today or in the future or a thousand years ago. Right. So there's that. And it's also timeless in, or, or locationless in terms of its particular location. So it's, it's obviously Africa, obviously informed by African music. So to be able to have African-American actors uh, to play those roles made tremendous sense. And then to get Beyonce to play a role, um, you know, that kind of talent is um, amazing. You know, you have a, an actor who's also a singer, who's also a songwriter, who also has a huge social media following, who's also uh, one of the few stars uh, in the galaxy of Hollywood. That makes it just fun. Now, you had mentioned some of the differences in, I guess, just speaking in Hollywood in general from 30 years ago, 25 years ago to now. I feel like, yes, there was a lot of diversity that was out there, you know, 30 years ago, but not nearly as much as there is now. And I feel like that's based on the opportunities that were available. So again, from your perspective, in a more general sense, not just on the topic of a specific movie, how do you see Hollywood or even Disney Studios back then compared to, to what they look like now? and the, what the landscape for diversity looks like. Well, I'll, I'll tell you my point of view, and I, I absolutely do not speak for Disney or any company or whatever. This is just Don's point of view, which may be sure, sure. wonderful or horrible. I think for a long time, uh, Hollywood was run by a bunch of old white guys. Yeah. And so we would make movies about a bunch of ourselves. And that was fine, really entertaining, but those movies are influential. And so it was, and still is, yeah, a conscious thought to have to say, I'm gonna cast this movie. Could this role be played by a woman? Right. Could this role be played by an African-American? I read a script the other day that was set in Hawaii. Could this role be played by a native Hawaiian or could it be played by a Japanese actor or actress? You know, so it opens up some ideas that could be very fresh and interesting. But 25 years ago, you might have just always gone to, you know, whoever the actor of the moment was. Right. Um, you know, Tom Cruise or something. So <laughs> that kind of um, opportunity is there. But if, I, if I'm really honest, I would say you have to, I personally have to consciously slap myself around and say, okay, before you do anything. And the good thing is there's great casting agents out there and great collaborators that will come to you and say exactly that and, and basically say, Here's here's some people that would be really interesting in this role, and you'll notice that it's colorblind. You know, this this role could be beautiful or or gender blind. This role could work really well. You know, there's so much work that's been done in the last few years. Really great work about gender diversity, and you know, a lot of the animated movies were uh, primarily male characters, male buddy movies, and occasionally you'd have a male and a female fall in love. But the female was. Uh, you know, just looking to get married and that kind of thing. <laughs> that thankfully is um, headed out the door. Right. And uh, Gina Davis, God bless her, did so much work on this and still does. And so much statistical work, not in a punitive way to Hollywood, but just to say, hey guys, have you noticed, <laughs> you know, all of all animated movies out there of the last 10 years, 75% um, of the principal characters are uh, male and 90% of the supporting characters are male. You know, if you have a sidekick, if wow. a squirrel or a duck or something, they're going to be male. And that was an eye-opener, I think, for everybody. So her work's been really important in helping us realize that. And it, it just brings a lot more diversity to, to, you know, possibilities for diversity. It makes you think twice about it. And I think that's all the better because people want to see um, movies that reflect who they are and what their lives are. 
Yeah, I think that's the, the main thing is just how important representation is. And I think a, a lot of what the people who've been there forever may not quite understand that when a young girl sees themselves as a role on screen, that can be so life-changing. Yep. Like literally life-changing. Yep. And I, I hear that from some of my friends who are just, you know, movie fans or, or you know, fellow movie critic community is just, that's one thing that even I've really had my eyes open to in the last, I would say, two years is how critical that is to have that range of options, whether it's gender or race or you know, whatever type of orientation somebody is preferring to have that represented. It sounds like what you're saying is that from the casting perspective and just from the idea perspective, there's a lot more availability now than there has been ever in the past. Yeah, and there were a lot of uh, a lot of mythology around it. For example, for a long time, people would say, well, you can't really open a movie with a big box office weekend, uh, a movie that stars a black actor or a Hispanic actor right. or a Chinese actor. I mean, that, that was around for a long time. I'd like to think that's going away slowly. And so there, thanks to a lot of people like um, you know, Eddie Murphy and you know, people that could open movies. So those people and that kind of thinking are slowly going away. And now you can see movies. And, and also the opening weekend is not something that matters anymore. You can have a good opening weekend. And of course, with our uh, coronavirus issues we're dealing with, that's going to change as well. But it's all about you know, who's going to watch the movie. And with animation, it's really interesting because uh, you don't have to cast a celebrity in an animated voice and people will still go right. see it. True. You know, you can sit down and watch, you know, name a movie, Frozen or Wreck-It Ralph. The actors in that movie are brilliant. Are they celebrities? Yeah, people know them, but it's, it's not, you know, somebody who's going to open the movie and give you a $100 million weekend. Right. What does that? The, the characters in the story does that. So it, I think that's a, a lesson you know, learned from animation that uh, the performance, the characters, the acting, the story, the integrity, all that stuff will make a movie last. And even if it doesn't open big, I, you know, one example is uh, Nightmare Before Christmas didn't really open, or Emperor's New Groove. I'll go to like Disney fan things right now and I'll say, uh, hey, I worked on Lion King, expecting people to say nice things. <laughs> and they do. Uh, but then they find out I worked on Emperor's New Groove, and they're like, you worked on Emperor's New Groove? And they, it's that cult film for them. It didn't open at all. I mean, it, it did really marginal business, but now people love it. And of course, they can watch it on Disney Plus all the time. So a lot of those movies are getting a following in their day in the sun. You know, like Atlantis, we had an African-American voice in the cast, which seems very incidental now, you know, 20 years later. But at the time, it was like, oh my God, you have, you know, <laughs> Phil Morris is in that movie and, and he's, he's a black guy. What will the audience say? Yeah, it's so stupid. But yeah, isn't it amazing how the mindsets have, have shifted just in, you know, 20 years, 30 years can seem like a, a long amount of time. But at the same time, it's not, it, from a historical sense, it's a, like a blip in the radar. Yeah. And we've had such a shift. And there's still a lot more work to do, obviously, but we, there's been such a shift in the last 20, 30 years, even the last five years, it's, it's been amazing. I actually recently discovered that you did producing for some of the Disney nature movies. And I, I love the Disney nature stuff. And I'm I'm just like, oh, cool. And Don Hahn has had his hands yeah. in those too. So I can I can definitely relate to that sense of like fun and surprise a little bit when, when people make those discoveries. So what, when you go out to different, you know, talk about meeting people, whether it's at conventions or things like that, like what is kind of the general reaction to like what do people say to you about about the movies that they love well it's pretty humbling in a in a 
is the major reaction if they come up to say hello or if I'm signing a book or something. Um, they always have a favorite movie that they want to mention. And a lot of times a story that goes with it. You know, a story yeah. about a, somebody will come up and say, you know, I lost my dad around the time of Lion King and it really helped me with grieving. And mm -hmm. uh, Or I really fell in love with my wife and we got married to, the, we had a Beauty and the Beast wedding. And so it affects people. And, and I always, you know, I always feel like gratitude, certainly. And then you have to realize I didn't, I didn't really do anything. I, <laughs> there's a couple hundred people that worked on those movies. I might be the spokesperson or the front man or something like that. But in the engine room, the people making those movies are, you know, the people that deserve the thanks. And a lot of times they're nameless. You know, you think of like 101 Dalmatians was one of my favorite movies growing up and you might be able to name a handful of people that worked on that. You know, so it, that's the interesting thing about movies in general is it's a collaborative team sport. Again, like a sports team, you might know one or two stars, a star pitcher, a star hockey player, whatever, but by and large, the team is who the star is. We're just talking a little bit about, you know, the diversity aspects and stuff as it relates to the African-American community. We mentioned, you know, Hawaiian culture. There's also, a, a, I think, one of the things that's the areas that's seen the biggest change recently is the LGBTQ community. Yeah. And I know in your work over the years, you know, you've worked with people of different preferences or however you want to define it, going back to even people, like you were just mentioning, people behind the scenes and stuff like that. So again, from your perspective, has there really been a tangible shift from how you you see the opportunities being created for different uh, lifestyles? Yes, like everything else, the needle moves back and forth. You know, so mm -hmm. sometimes um, there's more opportunity than others. But in general, when you're in the in the arts and the creative world, you're going to get a lot of diversity in terms of people's orientation. No matter what you're doing, you might be a ceramicist or on pots, you might be a dancer, you might be a writer, you're, you're going to get a, a variety. But the truth is you're going to get a variety of that in the insurance business and the car, but you know, it's everywhere because it's a human trait. It's not a particular odd trait, it's just a human trait. So working with a team where you might have a lot of um, diversity like that is a, a plus because you know what? It doesn't matter is the bottom line. Yeah, <laughs> that know, is true. All. First of all, it's none of my business. Secondly, it doesn't matter. And third, you know, some of my most cherished collaborators, you know, might have a different orientation than I do and, and whatever, but I just, I don't care because they're great contributors. And so that's what I look for. I, uh, you know, at, at times, I can be working on Howard Ashman's story and he was a gay man in a time when being a gay man was not a good thing. And, and, and that needle moves back and forth in society and probably has for thousands of years. For example, um, same-sex couples were not insured by companies quite often. And that's the place where Disney really stepped forward and said, we need to make progress on this issue. We need to insure people who are in committed relationship as, as same-sex couples. Howard, uh, when he contracted uh, HIV and AIDS, actually moved out of New York City up the Hudson River to a place because he just didn't want to deal with having to run into people every day and say, what's wrong? What's going on? Right. Um, and he wanted to just have some peace up there to do his work. And so a lot of what we did with Howard, we did up in, you know, upstate New York. It was a different time. It was a really different time. And that's what's been revealing about telling Howard's story because I, I don't know what it's like to walk in those shoes. And yet I have so much respect for him because it wasn't about that. He wasn't out to make movies or tell stories that had an overt LGBTQ point of view or an overt Jewish point of view or an overt Baltimore point of view or an overt male point of view. He was just a dramatist and he was trying really successfully to tell yeah. stories. 
So that's my feeling and my philosophy, which is welcoming because those are people who have, talk about diversity, they have, in many cases, have had very difficult lives because of who they are and the world that they've had to encounter and having right. to come out to friends and family. That is galvanizing to people and that is something I respect tremendously of that because I, I didn't have that growing up. I, you know, I can come out and say, well, I'm, I'm going to come out as Lutheran or so, you know, it's like, it's not the same thing. <laughs> um, so you're, it's just different. And I feel like, yes, I had challenges in my life, but these are um, really special people um, who have so much to give and their orientation is not an issue. When I think you really nailed it on the head is that they're people. Bottom line, that's who they are. Is they they bring creativity, they bring ideas, they bring stories, they bring life to to whatever they're doing, just like anybody else. And you know, you had mentioned of telling Howard's story. That's one thing I was leading to was you had made the documentary about Howard Ashman that's going to be coming out on Disney Plus here sometime in the near future. But I wanted to go back specifically, and you can talk more about the documentary itself. But I wanted to go to specifically when there's a little Disney event that we have here in the Pacific Northwest my brother puts on called the Pacific Northwest Mouse Meet. A couple years ago, you uh, showed a private screening during that weekend's events. And if, if I'm not mistaken, that was, I think it had been seen one other time. Yeah, we had shown it to smaller groups just to get notes, to get feedback. I remember being in the audience and being very moved by the documentary itself. And then also just having that shared experience of a group of what I would call hardcore Disney fans that really know who he is already. And yeah. then seeing the intimacy of his life that you're able to put on the screen. Like, what was it like for you in that moment to present it to that audience? Well, it was wonderful. And I, on all the films I've worked on, we've taken the movies out and tested them. Sometimes in a very formal way where we hand out questionnaires and ask the audience questions. Uh, but what I did up in Seattle, and it is just show it to get some audience reaction. We didn't do Q&A afterwards, really. We talked about the movie a little bit, but I wanted it to be private. I wanted it to be um, something where I could just hear with people, you know, where, where they were laughing or where they were squirming in their seat or where they felt emotional or whatever. The, that experience was terrific and was so useful for me. And I was really familiar. I, I feel at home up in Seattle. My sister lived there for years and years and years. My mom and dad lived there for a long time up in uh, oh, nice. Everett. And my sister lived in Snohomish. And, you know, it's so it's very comfortable for me up there. And so I just felt like what a op great opportunity to kind of go off the radar. It's not in Hollywood. And take it to a little theater. So Don was nice enough to say yes to me, which was crazy. And, and get a theater, <laughs> which I know was a hassle for him. And everybody no, should... but before you go on, on the flip side of that, I would say that you know, Don is my brother who hosted the Mouse Meet or hosts, hosts the Pacific Northwest Mouse Meets every year. He would actually say the same thing about you wanting to come up here and show the movie. So I think there's definitely a, a mutual sense oh, there good, good. Of, like, of like, oh my gosh, we, you know, we get to watch this movie. And, and then you're sitting there saying, oh my gosh, I get to show that movie up there. So yeah. there's, there's definitely a, a mutual excitement that, that, that happened there. That's for sure. Oh, that's good to hear. Yeah, because, you know, we're really cautious about showing any movie before it's done. And especially now, it wasn't so bad 30 years ago because you would show a movie like Hunchback of Notre Dame and nobody would go out on the internet because there wasn't an internet. So people were really respectful and, um, and I got great feedback from it, good and bad. You know, people are very respectful and always say, yeah, I really liked it, that I didn't understand this part or this wasn't clear to me. And those are the things you want to hear. Then we were able to change the movie and, and work with it a little bit. Yeah, it was a great experience and, and something that we try to do all the time. And uh, I love going up there. I've been up there twice now, I think, over the years. And yep. 
Um, it's a crazy group of people that like, are, <laughs> as you know, and they're just super into all things Disney. And, and also anytime Disney, you know, breaks out a little bit, like as Lucasfilm or ads, Marvel or something, they're into that too. You know, they're just welcoming. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that it's it's re it's remarkable that that uh, event can stay contained in that convention center for much longer because it's uh, really popular, <laughs> really wonderful. Yeah, no, we appreciate that, and I'm sure Don will be uh, you know excited to hear that feedback as well. And you know, I'm sure we'll be looking for you to come back up sometime in the next uh, couple years. So yeah, you know, we can look forward to that because you know the it's, it's not going away anytime soon. Even with world events happening, it, we'll we'll find ways to make that happen. But exactly. you know, just uh, we had mentioned earlier, you know, the documentary is called Howard, and it is going to be coming out on Disney Plus at sometime soon. You know, again mm -hmm. with things going on in the world that could get pushed up, could get pushed back, could maintain a, a specific day. But is there anything that you would want to tell people about that film as far as you know to look forward to it? And then I guess another question, we'll start to wrap up. Is there anything else you're working on currently that you would want? people to maybe bookmark for, for something coming down the road. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, I, I, Disney Plus is great. I mean, as a, I'm a Disney geek, along with everybody else. And so to be able to uh, tune in and see things on Disney Plus that maybe have never been seen in 50 years right. uh, is a treat. And when we started making Howard, I started on that movie five years ago and there was no Disney Plus. We were just thinking, well, well, the story, I wanted to tell the story so deeply and I figured if it's good enough, it'll find a home. And it was actually Bob Iger who, who helped. I, I showed it to him, I sent it to him thinking he would never have the time to see it and he watched it and he wrote back and just said, I love this movie, it's be perfect for our streaming service. And I said, what's a streaming service? And <laughs> he hooked me up with them and I showed it to them and they were able to, uh, they really embraced it and they've been a great, great group of people to work with. So. Disney Plus is a great thing, and that's where the movie will make its premiere. And, and I love that because it'll be a, a wonderfully wide audience internationally, too, for that movie. And yeah, and for the future, I don't know. I'm working on a few things. I've been doing a lot of documentaries lately because they're fun. It allows you to breathe life back into characters who aren't around anymore. Howard would be an example of that. Tyrus Wong was another documentary I did that was similar. So I'd love to do a film, and it doesn't have to be a Disney film, but just about uh, people and events, particularly people uh, that change the world. And I tend to side towards people who are artistic heroes. I find there's plenty of sports heroes out there. There's a lot of political heroes, military heroes, and there's just as many art artistic heroes out there and those are the people I'm most interested in. Looking at your IMDb page, it does say that it's been announced that Hunchback of Notre Dame is in the pipeline with, with you as an executive producer. So is that something that you're currently working on or is that just yeah. like a, something down the road or where's that at right now? No, it's it's in development. It's, it's moving along. It's been moving along for a few years actually with some very interesting people involved. A lot of the same people who worked on Beauty and the Beast live action, which I loved. And I was yeah. a little more active on that movie uh, in terms of its gestation period and things. Sure. And I thought they did a great job on that movie. And so I'm excited about it. And I think Hunchback is Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz's most amazing score ever in right. terms of their music and the- I would agree with that. Yeah, just a very powerful thing. And so powerful emotional score. And what's funny is when we were making it, we were really, uh, we we had many days where we thought, what are we doing? We're gonna, dis we're gonna just piss off the handicapped community and the differently abled community and the deaf community and the French. And, and we're just gonna, and it was the opposite. It was, it's like so beloved when you go to, to uh, Paris Disneyland, it's a show there and 
you know, there's there's a lot of people, again, it goes back to your earlier comment on how people want to see movies about characters that are like themselves. So if you're a kid and you have some sort of you know, condition where you're, you're not able to uh, be so-called normal, you can relate to this character who is winning and wholesome, interesting, emotional character who's... Uh, and there's other characters who are so-called normal in that movie that aren't that way. So it's an interesting, <laughs> don't judge a book by its cover kind of story. Right. Um, exactly. Which I love. So, uh, and, and you're very much related to Beauty and the Beast in terms of its, all those stories come from Cuban psyche and Cyrano and, uh, you know, an unusual outcast character because of a curse or a handicap or something. Yeah, that's definitely in the works and I'm excited about it. Cool. Well, Don, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It, yeah. you know, it's been a lot of really good information and I really enjoyed our conversation. Any, any last minute thoughts you want to add to, for the listeners? Boy, no. I, uh, boy, I'm always, I always love to um, hang out with fans of podcasts like yours and, and so many of them because it's it's my people, uh, you know, because that's me. I, I listen to them and I, I go around and try to learn from them. And there's so many historians. I'm not a historian. I like to write books about Disney. There's so many great writers and podcasters who really understand the history of Disney. So I, I am definitely cut out of the same cloth as your audience and so appreciate those people and what they bring to it. And it's why we make these movies. We don't make them for ourselves as much as we do to take them out there and entertain people. And I think, uh, you know, during tough times that we're going through, even more so, you know, to be able to take a minute and close out the real world and be able to watch a film like Hunchback of Notre Dame or whatever and just <laughs> yeah. transport yourself is, um, is why we make them. Yeah, we're definitely thankful for all those streaming services like you're talking about, it, especially Disney Plus right now, because oh, it really man. does. It, it, there's what Disney offers on the streaming service is just so many levels of like comfort and history yeah. and going back to childhood and and all of that type of stuff so you know i'm thankful that we have that during any time of, of our lives right now yeah and, and, and comfort something you can watch with your family uh diversity um yeah that's all those things so it's a good time all right well thanks again don uh, this is mark yeah. morin speaking with don Hahn on the 206.com podcast talking about diversity in filmmaking One more time, thank you to Don Hahn for being part of the show and for bringing such a unique perspective to the Diversity in Film conversation. Episode 7 of the 206.com Diversity in Film podcast series will be released on Monday, June 15th at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. The episode will feature Seattle resident and film critic Amy Simon, who is the marketing director for Smart House Creative and is also a longtime contributor to the Three Imaginary Girls website. Make sure to mark your calendar and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on any of the episodes in this series. Also, if you do need to catch up, you can find them on 206.com and through most major podcast outlets. If the podcast outlet you are using has a podcast rating option, please consider leaving us a positive review. As always, thank you for your support and thank you for listening to the 206.com Diversity in Film podcast series.